Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place as part of our Sustainable Wine Packaging Conference on the 23rd of June 2021 as a virtual event. It was kindly sponsored by BSI, the British Standards Institution. Thanks so much to them for their support. So looking forward to this session uh, with Nick Kirk uh, from British Glass. Um, We've said in our title, how can and will glass reduce its CO2 footprint? So Nick, really looking forward to your insights. Um, but before we start, why don't you just tell us a bit about the two hats you wear? As Toby said, I, I'm Nick Kirk from British Glass. I'm the technical director there. And my role really is to provide sort of technical insight, technical support to the, the policy team within British Glass that then work with um, sort of the, the stakeholders and the supply chain. Um, I have probably well, over 30 years experience in the glass industry. I, since leaving university, I've always been in the glass industry, been involved in different organisations. I work for a glass manufacturing organisation, sorry, my organisation provided um, furnaces for glass manufacturers and I did some time as an environmental consultant. And I've been with British Glass for the past um, 18 years. Also, I do wear another hat. Um, British Glass own a company called Glass Technology Services, which is a technical provider to the glass industry. And I'm also the technical director for that business. So I'd sort of work between the two businesses, supporting both businesses from a technical aspect on glass. Um, Because I've also experienced in sort of glass manufacturing, understanding the process of glass manufacturing, and more recently been involved in a lot of the discussions on DRS, EPR, recycling, etc. So I have a lot of experience in those sorts of sectors. So hopefully there'll be lots of plenty of questions I can answer. And uh, I'll note down probably a few pages of comments from the earlier sessions that I'll try and address as well at the same time. Thank you. It's great that you have that experience at both ends of the value chain as well, the manufacturing and, and end of life. So, I mean, a simple question to start, Nick, you know, where, where are we on this? The glass industry is getting a bit of a tough time, isn't it, from, from on wine sustainability and other issues. Um, first of all, is that fair? Secondly, what's happening? And thirdly, let's talk about the question you and I discussed the other day. What can the, what can the wine industry do to send better signals to the glass industry to help drive that and support the innovation that's needed. So a lot to talk about. Really looking forward to some uh, opening comments before we get into questions. Yeah, well, re- really just to set the scene from glass, glass as a, a packaging material. Um, it's a material where it's, it can be 100% recycled content. There's no problem in that. And we quite commonly see green glass being 80 to 90% recycled content. Glass is a permanent barrier as well. So it doesn't allow, it doesn't have any interaction with the liquid. And this is really especially important with wines, which tend to be acidic. And that's why glass has been such a good container for wine for longevity. You can store wine for long periods of time having very little, well, sorry, very little, having no interaction with the product at all. Whilst other packaging formats do have some interaction with the wine. So that's something to really consider. So from a food contact point of view, glass is a really good option for that storage. Um, we talked about lightweighting. It can be lightweighted, which we'll probably cover later. And glass is glass. If I buy a wine bottle from Argentina, Australia, South America, it is exactly the same composition. It can be remelted any, anywhere in the world. Whilst other packaging formats tend to be very complicated in their structures, it can be multi-layered, it can be different compositions. So it's a very simple materials. Container glass is just container glass. So that's sort of setting the scene on glass. And another area I'd like to touch on, and I think this is a, um, an area touched by Joe on a few occasions, is regarding life cycle analysis. 
Now, I've been involved in many life cycle analysis by actually constructing them and also reviewing them. And the thing that I always struggle with, and I think Joe supported this, is the actual boundary of your LCA. Lots of LCAs are written to tell a story by whoever's potentially funded it. And that can be a weakness sometimes. Really, what we want is independent life cycle analysis for the whole supply chain of that product, whether it's glass, plastics, aluminium cans. And this is all going back to the material extraction, which tends to be neglected quite a lot of the time. So if you take, for example, glass, the main ingredient is sand. So relatively um, abundant material, relatively low carbon intensity to extract. The other main raw material is limestone. So these are materials found in the earth crust at quite high abundance. Whilst if you look at something like plastic, that relies on mineral oil. And the extraction of mineral oil, refining of mineral oil, the making of pellets, that tends to be um, not covered by lots of LCAs. So I really support for all packaging materials, we need a really comprehensive LCA from cradle to cradle. And I think it was mentioned, the word from cradle to retail, is that that's not really appropriate because we're forgetting about the end of life. What happens to that packaging at the end of its life? And as I say with glass, it can be recycled. Other packaging formats do have challenges on how it can be recycled. I know the fugal bottle has been mentioned a few times this morning, and there's lots of PR about it being a paper bottle. But essentially, the contact material is a plastic within, within that paper, paper box. So really, that's what needs to also be understood. How recyclable is all, all of the whole packaging mix, not just the exterior of that? Does that answer the first set of questions or...? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a helpful overview. I suppose, where's the industry now on, on reduction of, of CO2 footprint? We, you know, we've talked about in, in other sessions how challenging it is to do that. You know, glass has to be created at a high heat. Furnaces have to be kept going. Base load power is complex stuff. You can't just stick a solar panel on your roof and have a 1,000-degree furnace running. So yeah. give us an overview of, of where progress is there on driving down the CO2 footprint of glass. Yep, yeah. uh, and no doubt... Um, Glass requires a lot of um, energy to melt, high, as you mentioned, high temperature, about 1,500 degrees, so lots of energy to undertake that process. But as, as an industry, we are really engaged in net zero, working towards um, total um, decarbonisation. And this will be achievable by the glass industry, we're very confident, because the fuels we use at the moment are fossil fuels, which uh, tend to be mainly natural gas. And the reason that is used is it's a relatively low um, cost energy sourced compared to electricity. Electricity can be two to three times more expensive for the same unit of energy, but you can melt glass using electricity. Our vision as part of our decarbonisation action plan is that renewable electricity will become more available, become competitive natural gas, and then we can start to convert over to renewable electricity for glass melting, along with looking at using hydrogen as well. Hydrogen is um, a very hot topic at the moment. Um, there's many projects in the UK and throughout the world looking at hydrogen um, generation, how you actually use that in glass melting. And you can actually use hydrogen for melting glass very, relatively well, um, also using electricity as well. So using sort of dual fuels, this sort of hybrid melter. And as... As those two fuels become available and both of them are derived from renewable sources, glass can then become carbon neutral. We can actually convert over to actually emitting no carbon during the formation of um, glass bottles. Interesting. And green hydrogen, we talked about the other day, 
is that pie in the sky like cold fusion or is it actually realistic and just explain for the audience what that is because if that works that's a complete breakthrough technology which of course we've seen lots of those not quite work so yeah. where are we on that yeah, at the, at the moment, the hydrogen production that's being investigated tends to take natural gas and basically split it and take out the hydrogen and take out the CO2 and capture the CO2 locally. And, and that works very efficiently. But at the end of the day, it's relying on fossil fuel as a base um, um, material to supply into that. Green hydrogen uses renewable electricity using hydrolysis process. So you basically break water down into hydrogen and oxygen and that's the green process, but it's, it's got to use renewable electricity from a renewable source to make it totally green. So those are two options. Um, the hydrogen made from the gas source is the most currently available, but the wall I see, there'll be a conversion over to electrolysis formation in future years. Okay, a great question from Ollie West here that fits with what we're talking about now. What are the timings for this net zero and um, what are the technologies that will get us there based on where we are today, because green hydrogen and fully baseload power from renewables is still a bit of a way off, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it is a good question. Um, well, as a glass industry, um, not just in the UK, but globally, we've invested and in the process of starting up an innovation centre in St Helens, and this is a £54 million glass research centre called Glass Futures. So the industry have engaged in this and pledged in this, and the UK government are heavily supporting it as well with funding. And this centre will really be looking at all the possible technology for you reducing the use of energy and looking at um, fuel switching. So um, the initial project it's looked at is fuel switching from um, natural gas to biofuels. And the audience may have already picked this up that NCERT Glass in Cheshire ran this trial um, using biofuels and using 100% cullet within their glass, working for companies like Diageo, Heineken and Carlsberg and producing a net zero bottle. So we've already demonstrated we can do it with biofuels and biofuels do have a few challenges that they're probably not sustainable long term, but in a short term solution, we demonstrated we can do it. I think the next steps is then looking at using hydrogen, using electricity, so we convert over to those. So as an industry, we've pledged to work together, as I say, with Glass Futures Innovation Centre, and we'll be looking at all the possible technologies. Also, we're not unique in using lots of energy. So we're also working with things like the cement industry, the steel industry, the paper industry, that are all using lots of energy. How do we use different types of energy? Also, are there other byproducts or waste materials from other industries we can use? And one project that I've been working on with Glass Technology Services is looking at ash from incineration from wood pellets from the generation. And the ash that's generated contains lots of minerals that you need in glass making. So we can actually take that ash, put it into glass, and that can contribute to its sort of negative um, carbon benefit because that ash would just go to sort of fertilizer or to um, landfill. So it's really useful to actually use that material. So again, that's another innovation that glass industry engage with and pursuing and hopefully we'll be moving to larger trials in the future. Are you talking to Drax about that? I assume that would be the um, the major... Yes, um, I won't name names of the companies we're talking to, but we're talking to lots of the big power generators that are using wood, wood pellets. Oh, Drax is the biggest. And if you want a connection there, I know them quite well. They're a really yeah. interesting company. Yeah. I mean, talk about having a sustainability challenge. I mean, they're... they're yeah. Wow, it's fascinating. Stuff. And 
Yeah, yeah. And you, as you can imagine, lots of those power stations are converting over to wood pellets, and mm. the, the amount of ash to generate is tremendous. So there's a huge opportunity. Exactly, yeah. um, and the collaboration side is interesting, isn't it? I was I do a bit of work with the the PVC industry, and there's a chlorine plant near Liverpool that uses more electricity than the entire city of Liverpool. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to have some competition for those low carbon power sources. So that collaboration oh, piece yeah. is going to be vital. Yeah, uh, and one bit of work I've been doing with British Glass is actually, um, and all the energy intensive industries, is to inform the government of how much energy we require. So how many gigawatts of electricity will we require? How much hydrogen require? So the, the government can pull that together and look at the infrastructure. And um, th when it comes down to electrical power, we'll need a completely upgraded in infrastructure within the UK, because it's not just going to be industry that will want electricity, we'll all have electric cars in 10, 20 years time. Um, so transportation, we're using lots of electricity. So there'll be a huge demand on renewable sources of energy. There's a lot of work to be done. I remember someone from um, National Grid telling me about 10 or 15 years ago that you really don't want to look too far under the bonnet because yeah. <laughs> some of that infrastructure is dead. Decades yeah. old um, at the moment because, it, as you say, it was a lot of the electrical um, infrastructure was put in 30, 40 years ago, and the, the, the increase in power demand will increase tremendously over the next generations. Yeah, well, it's important for the audience and everybody else to understand the complexity of this. But do you have an actual year for net zero? It's becoming quite popular to say by year X, 2030 or whatever, we'll get to net zero. Have you put yeah. an actual year on it? Well, we've pledged to meet the government's targets of 2050. But as an industry, we are confident we can come way before that. Um, the biggest stumbling block is availability of renewable electricity and hydrogen. As soon as that starts to become available uh, at a competitive price to natural gas, we can convert over. As demonstrated by the NSERT trial, we can convert over. It's just the, the economics is partly driving it at the moment. And, and what about coordination across Europe? Because I, I saw that I, I sat on a webinar recently, late last year, with a the glass industry, I think it was a European Glass Association, launched a, a sustainability hallmark yes. glass. And I thought, well, great, this will be accompanied by targets and a strategy. But it wasn't. <laughs> it was just, here's a sustainability hallmark so people can say glass is great. And I thought, yeah, that's not quite so good. Um, and Jan says Robinson picked that up as well and wrote a piece about it. And I, I, I wondered what the level of coordination is with your European counterparts, because you may end up I mean, you don't want to disadvantage British bottle suppliers, or but you may end up with a situation where the French are saying, well, we're 70% nuclear. You know, we could trace some, a lot of power back to nuclear, which can be zero carbon, depending on <laughs> how your life cycle analysis works. What, you know, so that could, could put the British glass industry at a disadvantage on sustainability. What are the, what's the coordination um, happening now and what are the challenges to making it better? Well, yeah, the coordination is improving. And uh, one of the main factors to improve that coordination is, is Glass Futures, which will, be, as I say, become a global research centre for the glass industry. So we're we'll, already, or they are already working with their counterparts within Europe. Um, as I say, it hasn't been good, but it's getting a lot better. And things like sharing knowledge on hydrogen melting, electricity melting, is, is starting to become a, a lot more um, prevalent because we all appreciate throughout Europe that these will be the next fuels. And even countries like France are starting a process of starting to blend some hydrogen into natural gas. And we'll see that happen in the UK at some point. There will start to be hydrogen blended in with natural gas. So we do need to start to adapt for when that comes along because hydrogen does have a slightly different calorific value. So we do need to make it sort of to compensate for that during the glass make, making process. Great, thanks. And um, 
audience, if you have questions on the sort of upstream on, on this sort of production side of things, now's the time because we're going to move on in a minute to talk about EPR and DRS and Nick's views on that. So, um, good question here from Ollie West again. Um, does the industry have to wait for net zero, or could a glass offsetting scheme get? That? I was going to ask you if there was any offsetting plans and and what that means. Um, when in the offsetting terminology, as in um, investing in sort of innovation, sort of tree planting offsetting, that type of thing. Well, I assume, Ollie, that's what, what you mean, basically. You know, the emissions we can't get rid of, we try and uh, get to net zero elsewhere. I mean, it, you know, it can be quite controversial, of course. And yes, you know, uh, referring back to the earlier session, you know, one of the things I think the wine industry could, could do really well is look at insetting yes. within its industry. And insetting is something big companies are starting to do instead of, you know, saying instead of buying credits from a mango forest managed by God knows who somewhere... Let's let's go into our supply chain and yeah. find ways we can reduce impact there. And, and the cork forests and cork landscapes would be a great way to do that. And I wondered how that thinking is is evolving with with glass. Um, yeah, it, it it is there. It is being discussed that option. Um, the sort of um, immediate option is looking at things like um, is it ways of reducing the carbon by the way we make glass? Can we reduce the energy we use by more efficiency? So those are the steps that have been taken. And over the past 20, 30 years, there's been an over 40% decrease in the amount of CO2 emitted by the glass industry in the UK, just through those incremental changes, um, especially when a new furnace gets built to put the latest technology in. So it is possible to start to reduce that. And I think one really good, um, good piece of action that's been taken by, and lots of people may have heard about this, the Competitions and Markets Authority are actually investigating green claims because um, it's going back to LCAs. There's lots of claims being made on the sort of green credentials of packaging materials, but there's no sort of way of verifying them. So the, the, the Competition Markets Authority want to actually have a system that's fair to all. And again, as an industry, we really support that. So we can actually say what our CO2 emission is, but also the CO2 emission is only one measure. Um, we need to look at the end of life. What, can I, what actually happens to that product at the end of life? Can it actually be recycled? Because glass containers can be made back into glass containers. So the, the one of the few packaging materials that goes from product to product a lot go from product to material and then maybe open loop recycled, not, not closed loop recycled back into the same product. So, again, those credentials need to be considered. And are you rubbing up against the limits of technology and innovation then until the energy breakthrough happens? You know, if a, if a major retailer or, or a wine business comes to you and says, look, what, where can you get to to reduce that footprint in the next five years without that energy breakthrough. Are you pretty much up against the limits of, 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 of technology innovation now? I'd say the energy um, conversion will be a big step. There'll be a step change. But um, one area where we can start to continue to reduce energy is the use of uh, recycled glass or commonly termed as cullet, because that takes 25% less energy to melt than the um, raw materials so with a better recycling infrastructure which is bit, and we're going to touch on it a bit on epr and drs that will start to make more glass available for remelt and therefore reduce energy so there's a considerable amount of energy can be saved through recycling of glass yeah let's talk about that in a minute quick question from patrick bryson is there a way to make glass even lighter by by added some sort of material that could strengthen it even further is i imagine there's no secret source left that you haven't looked into but no, it's, again it's another good question another area of work i'm actually been working on and have worked on um 
lightweight of glass uh, has come along a long way. I was involved in some lightweighting projects with an organization called Wrapping UK back in around about 2005, looking at wine bottles. And then the typical wine bottle weight was probably around about 500 grams. During that, during that period of time from then to that now, we, we can get down to 300 grams, quite typically 350 grams wine bottles are available. So lightweighting has been a, a really big step forward. So we can actually lightweight um, and produce those lighter weight bottles. Sorry, what's the other part of the question? Yeah, it, it, pretty much that. It's just you know, how, how much further can you go before you know you hit the limitations you're at currently with energy supply. Yes, so so lightweighting is obviously a, a good step forward. I know that was discussed quite a lot on the first session. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's turn to talk about that, Jane. Thank you for your question. I think the answer to your question, Jane, though, is the Paris Agreement and the national allocation plans that um, all the countries are going to start arguing about at COP26 in November. So I don't think I'm going to dive down that uh, that particular rabbit hole of international targets. Um, Nick's qualified for many things, but not many of us are qualified to <laughs> set, to do national global climate change strategy. So let's talk a bit more about um, the other end of the chain. Um, what responsibility does the glass industry feel, you know, under scope three um, strategies and, and and so on over G GHGs and just kind of general pressure to to push harder on the recycling thing? Because you know, there's an argue, a traditional argument that says. Once it once it leaves your members' production facilities, well, it's not really their problem anymore. It's the, the it's the wine companies and the retailers and the consumers' problem. But of course, life isn't as simple as that, is there? And and you know, we have EPR and we have DRS coming in in, in many many cases. So just talk us through where, where the industry is involved uh, on that side of things. Well, I'd say it it is our problem um, as a as a glass industry. We are really engaged in looking at getting as much glass back as possible because it's a really valuable resource. As I say, 25% less energy. Also, the raw materials, it saves from being extracted. <clears throat> and we can get up to that 18, 90, even 100% if required, recycled content. So if we can get all the glass back, that's really good for the glass industry and the rest of the supply chain. So we, we are, as an industry, supporting those systems that maximise glass recovery and then glass recycling. And the important thing with all glass recycling it does start with the consumer. It's trying to make it as easy as possible for the consumer. And I'm probably going to offend an awful lot of people now, but as uh, in Britain, we are quite lazy when it comes to recycling. So we want convenience, we want it very simple. Um, a lot of European nations still work on sort of bring sites and they're very effective. But in the UK, we've become more reliant on that, what we call the curbside collection, where we take it from the household. And that's been relatively good. So if you look generally for glass over the whole of the UK, we've got a collection rate of about 76% of glass is collected for recycling from the curbside. So that's really good from local authorities. So we're doing really well. Wales actually at about 87.3% of their glass place in the market is collected for recycling. So we know that we're, we're doing well, but there's still that 25% to go. What, so, sorry, just to clarify that collected for recycling versus actually recycled. Yeah, Are they two separate numbers? Yeah, the two separate numbers. So you've got collected for recycling. So over the, in the UK, collected for recycling is 76%. The recycling rate that's actually converted back into a, a product, whether that's into glass, and some glass actually goes into aggregate, is, is about 71% last year. So 71% of all glass packaging placed on the UK market was recycled. Of that 70%, 71%, 70% was actually recycled back into remelt. 
and 30% was um, converted to aggregate. So we've got a really good story to tell there that at the moment we're at 71%, 29% is unfortunately being lost. So we do need to work harder to recover that. And as a glass industry, we are supporting all those policies that will increase glass recycling. And as I mentioned, local authorities are doing a fantastic job at the moment on glass recovery that then contributes to glass recycling. But they have sort of limited budgets on what they can do, and they're doing very well within those budgets. So obviously Brexit has thrown many spanners in many works. And I imagine with EPR harmonisation across the UK and Europe, that, that's one of them. Where are we on EPR at the moment for the UK in terms of how it affects glass and sort of whose responsibility is whose? You did a great job of explaining that to me the other day yeah. in a way I could finally understand. Yeah. Um, perhaps for the audience, you could do the same thing here so we can understand who's, who's got responsibility in different parts of this. Yeah. Well, at the moment, we have a effective EPR system um, under the packaging directive, and it's known as the packaging recovery note system. And this is really a system where when glass is recycled, a recovery note or PRN is formed and there's an obligation along the supply chain. So retailers have about 49 percent obligation of all the glass that's placed on the market to recycle. So they they have, have to purchase a PRN and that is actually purchased from the glass manufacturer as they recycle it, as they put it back into the furnace so they can show as a retailer they fulfilled their obligation. Now, that system's been working for about 15 years now, and it's creaking a little bit at, at, at joints, and it's going to be refreshed with a new EPR system, where at the moment it's a shared responsibility. The new EPR system that's gone before consultation completed a few weeks ago, and likely to be implemented in 2023, is a single point of obligation. And the single point of obligation will be by the producer who places the packaging on the market. And the producer who places the package in the market is really the brand owner. So the brand owner will be responsible under EPR to, to cover all the costs for recovery of that packaging material. A brand owner can also be a retailer because retailers have many of their own brands. So they'll be responsible for their own brands. And then the, the mainstream brand owners have responsibility. And the way the EPR system will work in the future is that there'll be a producer fee. And the producer fee will be based on its recyclability. How easy is it to recycle? And glass is in a really good position here because glass is easy to recycle. There's already a good infrastructure recycling. So it will carry a very lower or low producer fee. And some work done by a consultancy called um, Unomia predicted that the producer fee for glass would probably be about 10 to probably 50 pounds a tonne producer fee that the, the producer will have to pay. Whilst plastics, which are very difficult and, chal and challenging to recycle, will have a higher producer fee. And this could range anywhere from 400 pounds to six to 700 pounds a tonne to recycle. So glass is in a strong position on EPR because we are a recyclable material with a recyclable infrastructure already in place. So as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter where the glass has come from, it can still be recycled. So a wine bottle, a beer bottle, a jam jar, it can all be recycled. It's all the same composition and it doesn't matter where it was produced in the world. So what are the pressures you anticipate from the brand owners being made more liable or, or at least having that fixed cost? Are they going to be coming to you saying, OK, well, like for further innovation, please help us get, yeah. uh, get, get impact down. I mean, that'll be their main request back to the industry. Yeah. 
as a way to the request to all the packaging industry from the brand owners is going to be make this packaging as recyclable as possible. If it has any components that are non-recyclable, they'll be faced with a higher fee for that product. So if we look at a glass bottle, if we can keep a glass bottle simple with a simple paper label, a simple closure, and if, whether it's cork, aluminium, they are recyclable. So say, for example, aluminium screw top, that's totally recyclable. The actual glass is recyclable and the paper label is. So that I'd have a, a relatively low producer fee. However, if we start sticking metal fixings onto that glass and putting um, labels that are adhered to the surface very difficult, that will make, increase the producer fee. And then if we start to put any sort of films on the outside, and films are really challenging for recycling, there's very little, if any, effective recycling of films. If you start to coat your bottle in a total film, then you'd incur a higher producer fee. So it would push brand owners to look at simplifying their packaging to make it recyclable. What about capsules? Because I was told by a major French producer, the capsule serves no purpose whatsoever, except for marketing. It's for the consumer to feel like there's some sort of integrity. But in terms of protecting the wine or in terms of um, oxygen transfer, I was told by one executive, others may disagree or perhaps tell me this is untrue, that the capsule actually serves no real functional purpose other than to look nice. So, does, and these are aluminium foil generally. So are they going to be a problem? And do we need to see the end of capsules or is that far too dramatic an idea? I think it will be considered because again, if you're putting on any material that's more difficult to challenge, sorry, recycle, will incur a higher fee. So aluminium is a totally recyclable material. If you start putting a plastic seal or film on, that isn't. So it will it may be pushed from plastic to aluminium and then maybe even consider whether aluminium is necessary to have that. Yeah, I guess aluminium yeah, is generally what you see, but I'm sure there are other materials in there. One of our plastics conferences a couple of years ago, we had one of the big recycling companies and one of the senior execs said at one point he was seeing up to 30 new compounds a month coming across his desk. <laughs> from from the packaging industry and he said we just can't even keep up we don't even know what this stuff is we can't keep up with the innovation so that kind of reduction to core materials is something that's been under a lot of discussion which of course is terrifying for a lot of marketers but is of course as you say more simple for the wine industry uh, when it comes to innovation there's two types of innovations innovation to make it sustainable and there's innovation for to make it look different on the shelf and sometimes the two don't quite go together so there needs to be a compromise Absolutely. So um, the question I had at the beginning, Nick, for you, my part three was, what can the wine industry collectively or a group of wine businesses do something to send the right kind of price signals to help the glass industry innovate and reduce that um, impact? Or um, is that a moot point, given the fact that we're kind of rubbing up against the boundaries of, of energy innovation at the moment? Is there something that could be done? Could a collection of wine, you know, retailers and wine companies say to the wine industry, right, say to the glass industry, right, we will commit X if you do Y. I mean, we see this in other industries, you know, the signal sending. Is that possible to reduce impact? I, th I think it's essential that the, the wine sector and the glass sector work together because I think together we, we will find a solution. Um, I think on pricing, I, I can't really discuss that, but um, I think with any in new innovation, there is always going to be initial increase in cost. Um, to actually make that step change. So I think working together to look at that. Uh, as I say, things like lightweighting have been very effective. Um, and the wine industry have adopted this very well um, because the sacrifice of lightweighting, sometimes you have to give away some of your design requirements to make it a little bit simpler, a bit more curvy in shape 
to make it easier to lightweight. So again, we need those discussions. We need to work together. How can we make a bottle lighter, but also still have its brand presence to make sure that our product sold? Thanks very much. And um, Sally, thank you for the clarification there about the, the role of capsules. Personally, I love seeing a dirty and dusty cork in the top of my wine bottle because it means it might be uh, the age I wanted to be to drink it. But I do take your point, given that most wine is sold uh, and, and drunk in a pretty youthful state. So thank you, Sally, for that. David Horlock has a question which maybe we might end on because we only have a couple of minutes left. If you recycle different colour glass, can you take the colour out in the recycling process or does glass have to be separated beforehand? That's a... Yeah. What, what's happened in the UK back back in um, sort of, well, bottle banks came in about 1977 and glass was colour separated. We used to have a three bins where we collected clear, brown and green separately. Around about 2005, 2006, there's a big conversion to um, glass being collected at the curbside and it's co-mindled, mixed together in colour. And the industry invested an awful lot of um, money and investment in actually technology to actually separate out the colours. So now we actually have the technology in place where we can take the three colours and we can actually separate it back out to, to the three prime, prime colours. So it's no issue actually collecting mixed colour. And as an industry, we support that glass should be collected as a mixed colour because it reduces the cost. We don't want people with three separate bins, just collect it together. We have that infrastructure there. The only constraint we have with colour separation is the particles need to be about 10 millimetres or above to allow the technology to technically and economically separate out the glass. So we don't want the glass crushed or broken, which is the, the difficulty with DRS, um, deposit return schemes, are likely to crush the glass. And that glass through DRS won't be able to be closed loop recycled because it would be crushed and won't be able to be colour separated. Whilst curbside, we all dispose of our bottles whole, and that's ideal because then they go whole, they get a bit broken along the way, but they're very easy then to colour separate back into colours and be closed loop recycled back into remelt. So collection at the curbside is really essential for ensuring that we get glass back into remelt. DRS is a way of collecting glass and it's only a collection system. It's not centred around recycling. And unfortunately, the administrator of the scheme will be looking at reducing cost and by compacting glass and crushing it and it won't be able to be actually remelted. There must be a technological solution to that, surely, somewhere, Nick. I mean, that can't be impossible, can it? it well, it, it, as you go to smaller and smaller particle sizes, it take, the technology takes longer to look at. So if you imagine if you break a bottle into four pieces, it'll go along a conveyor belt very quickly. If you break a bottle into a thousand pieces, it takes longer to process. So you can technically, you can process it in very small pieces. It's the economics that, of the balance you've got to look at. So ideally, we want to try and collect bottles whole wherever possible. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, final question. Uh, Mikel asked about percentage of glass recycling in the UK. We've mentioned that earlier. Just give us that headline again, Nick. Yeah. For those for, for green glass, so glass that's recycled, 71% of glass placed in the market is recycled. And typically, the recycled content of green is around about 80 to 90%. So, which is obviously the typical colour for lots of wine bottles. Okay, thanks. Um, final question, and we will close. Uh, Mikel also asked about the screw cap. How about the screw cap in the cycle of glass recycling? Does it impact negatively? Is there a problem there? I've often wondered about that. Like no, if no, people no. throw cork as, 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 in. As British Glass, we did a campaign saying, keep your caps on, using this um, full Monty um, um, logo to actually promote it. Um, because the, the aluminium cap is, is really useful. 
And the, the, the glass processing stage, when it's um, colour sorted, it'll break the glass up into fine particles and the aluminium breaks away. And the aluminium is a, a valuable material. So the actual glass processor wants that aluminium. So we, we encourage people to leave the caps on. Okay, thank you. Um, I was told that when they lightweighted um, some PET bottle caps, nobody a few years ago, a major UK retailer told me this, that the, the, the machines down the value chain hadn't been calibrated to, to handle the lighter weight plastic bottle caps so that it looked good from a brand point of view, but when it went into the system, yeah. you, couldn't, you, know, you couldn't actually recycle them properly because yeah. the machines, which had cost a fortune, had not been built for that, which is a great example of how that collaboration is needed between yeah. a, a brand or a retailer saying one thing, yeah. they really got to think about the consequences of that down the, yes. down the chain. And I think that was mentioned a few times by the panel this morning, unintended consequences. Um, when we start looking at different packaging formats, we need to look at the whole picture, the whole story. And I think Carlos used the word, the whole story, is we need to understand it from that cradle to grave all the way through and not just take a snapshot in the middle, which sometimes can be, can be the, the issue that we're not being fair and true to our consumers on the actual impact of packaging. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave this here. We're out of time. Uh, okay. But Nick, uh, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating set of insights. Um, it just helps us uh, understand more of the complexity that we're dealing with in these issues and the fact that there, there are no easy answers. But the clear message is, unless we collaborate, we are not going to solve these challenges. And so that's why I hope British Glass will join the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. We are most likely going to join because I think it's a forum we do need to be involved with. And I think today's been re a real good eye-opener eye and I'm intending to stay on as well. So, yes, I'd like to engage with the, the glass, sorry, the wine um, sector. Excellent. Well, I look forward to you confirming the membership when you can um, before July 3rd. And uh, we'll bring this session to, uh, to a close now. Thanks again. We're going to take a quick 10-minute break before our session about retailers and producers engaging consumers in sustainable wine format. So um, I'm going to do my video off for five minutes before we uh, prepare for the next session. In the meantime, um, thank you very much for this session, Nick. Much appreciated. Yeah.